This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, coming up on today's episode, if you were listening to the episode on Friday, we heard from Jeremy Hunt uh, and about his new book, all about the 150 preventable deaths that happen in the NHS every week and what might be done about them. So what we thought we'd do today is assemble a panel of experts, some campaigners, some people who've worked on the inside of the NHS, to ask what practically can be done, what do they think of Jeremy Hunt's suggestions, is it a bit rich for somebody who was the longest-serving health secretary in history to suddenly have some ideas after he left office? Uh, that's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. First, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. Uh, no register Sylvester today, so today's panel is Libby Purvis and Mammy Rana. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's time for The Columnists. Uh, normally it's Libby Rachie, uh, but no uh, Rachie today. Rachel Sylvester's not here, but we've got Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. Where are you beaming in for, for, from, Libby? I am up, up the forecastle of our little boat down at Falmouth, waiting to set out to be away for three weeks. Fabulous. How, how far can you go in three weeks? Uh, we need to get to the west of Ireland and then we need to get round to Scotland. Very nice, very nice. And Manveen Rana is on the line as well. Morning, Manveen. Hello. I'm nowhere near anywhere as glamorous as that. That sounds like so much fun. I'm stuck in a cupboard, which is where I broadcast from most of the time. So. Well, it's nice that you're here. We appreciate having you here. <laughs> um, uh, Libby, first of all, let's talk about... Oh, Libby's gone. Libby's gone already. Fine. Uh, Mavine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you left her on a boat. That was she's, never going to last. She's sunk. She's sunk. <laughs> she sailed away. We'll try and get her back. We'll try and get her back. Um, uh, Mavine, let's talk about the stories on the front of the Times today. Uh, you are not the thought police, top officers told. So there's Andy Cook, who is the new chief inspector of constabulary, saying that police forces are not the thought police, must focus on driving down crime, given that charge rates were their lowest in more than 30 years. Uh, said officers must avoid politics with a small p, follow the law, remember that different thoughts are not an offence. What do you make of this? Well, I thought it was um, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, clearly, I, I just, I was quite impressed. I sort of thought that's a very savvy move on his behalf. You know, he's come into this job, he wants to make a splash. And it's one of those things that you can say, and it's a bit like an optical illusion. Whoever looks at it finds it very hard to dispute. You know, no, nobody wants, uh, wants the police to be wasting their time on things they shouldn't be investigating. Everybody wants... 
uh, genuine crimes to be investigated more. You know, it's appalling. You know, if you look at some of the rates, I think rapes, uh, it's 1.3% of, of rapes seem to be prosecuted at the moment, which is shocking. Um, but at the same time, I, I, if, I was a, if I was a policeman, I'm not sure I'd be any clearer on what actually counts as um, thought crime, uh, people being offensive versus genuine hate crime, which, you know, is legislated against. And we do have this online harms bill going through too at the moment. And, you know, you look at what's happened in America over the weekend, you look at the, the shootings in Buffalo, which were being live streamed at one point, and you do realize that quite often what starts off as, as uh, you know, a thought crime, I, I suppose, gets amplified by the internet increasingly and can end incredibly badly. Um, and we don't have any particular answers to that. And it just sort of felt like, you know, I'm sure it's a nightmare for the police. You know, I think they are sort of on the sharp end of what is sort of like a, you know, a miasma of difficult policymaking that nobody's quite got right yet. We haven't quite worked out when, you know, hate, hate crime is, is hate crime online, for example. Um, and there is just a danger, I think, you know, you sort of, um, this is meant, I suppose, for different audiences. And you do want people who are on Twitter who just get annoyed by somebody and immediately try to report it to to perhaps stop and think twice and wonder whether this is a good use of police time. But at the same time, if you're a policeman, you know, we've had so many examples, for example, you know, over, over the years, you know, of, say, women who report feeling threatened by men and nothing gets done because it's not taken seriously and then they end up dead a few months later. And there's just a danger that some of this hate crime, you know, I mean, they, they, they've classified transphobia, for example, as not being a particularly you know, particularly important hate crime. And I just think, you know, a few years ago, people would have said that about homophobia. And yet we've seen how it can end really badly. Yeah. Um, so I'd just be really worried that, you know, you you, you stop taking this stuff seriously altogether. Um, Libby, I think we've got you back. Yeah. Ah, terrific. Um, what do you make of this? Because there was part of me that read this, like, of course, you know, I think, yeah, of course it'd be right to, to if, to tell police that they're not the thought police. There's something about this that sort of has a slight whiff of, uh, this seems like a, a, a sort of letting the police off the hook a bit for actually some pretty terrible um, uh, um, rates of solving crimes. Only 6% of all crimes resulted in the charge list last year. Uh, the charge rates for some crimes were lower, 2.9% of all sexual offences, 1.3% of rapes, 5% of burglaries. 4.3% of, of thefts. We're not really suggesting that that's because, uh, you, you know, we've all gone woke and we want the police to be the thought police. Um, uh, the, and actually, it, it seems to be sort of slightly let, letting the, the, the police off the hook a bit. That's what it felt like to me. Oh, just, it's funny you see how there's a generation thing going here between me and you and Manveen because I liked what he said. I thought it needed saying the Blair era hate crime laws, uh, basically trying to make everybody a lovely fluffy bunny with kind eyes, have caused more confusion than happiness and they've fueled the present culture wars and they've fueled a dislike and distrust of the police. You know, people interviewed for insulting the Welsh or thinking it's wrong to be gay. Uh, there is a clear line which is about assault, which is about actual threat. And I think he's just trying to say, let's draw that line, because I think a lot of police have misunderstood it. And it, it does waste time. And I, you know, the, the online stuff again, it's um if if you threaten if you incite violence directly, it's a crime. If you do a violent thing directly, it's a crime. It's not a crime to dislike or disapprove of a whole sector of the populace or to think that it's wrong to be gay if you're a particular kind of Christian and so on. It's, you know, I think it's a line which needed drawing and, and why shouldn't he draw it? 
Well, I suppose I suppose because it it's like it it's it plays into the idea that the police are all a, a, a well, it's, it's sort of implying the police are a load of woke hand wringing liberals who go around arresting anyone for looking at each other. Whereas actually, all the stories we've heard about the culture of the police is quite the opposite. Actually, a, a shift of the culture of the police is probably needed, but not but more more towards. Uh, being slightly, uh, you know, uh, you know what? I wouldn't, I wouldn't generalize about what the police are like any more than I would generalize about what Times columnists are like. You know, I just think that what he said was useful, and then let's hope he goes on and does useful <laughs> things on top of it. You know, he sounds, he sounds as if he's being a bit robust about a particular kind. I mean, I have encountered police who are ultra woke. I have obviously heard and read the WhatsApps of police who are ultra non woke. But you can't just generalize. And what he says is just, you know, it, it seems solid to me. Yeah, you're right. And it's, it's his first intervention. We'll see if he if he's still bagging on yeah, about this later. See yeah, exactly. See what happens I mean, later on. Talking is nothing. It's cheap. Yes, exactly. See what actually happens. Uh, let's talk then about your column today, uh, Libby. Turn over your papers. Uh, <laughs> we're in. We're deep into exam season. Um, uh, over the next six weeks, homes across the country are going to be gripped by it. Um, uh, and you, you're saying that the, the, this this year's uh, uh, cohorts need our, deserve our sympathy. Well, they do because they haven't had a full exam hall experience yet. You know, they didn't have the GCSEs. Most people kind of get that and then they think, oh, yeah, I see what an exam hall is like with great seriousness and national exams. So it is going to be more difficult. But I mean, what's interesting at the moment, and COVID has given the education lot something to think about. And I wish Rachel was here to talk about this, uh, that uh, basically A-levels, there's quite a lot to be said about A-levels not being quite the sacred and useful marker that they were about pen and paper exams being a sort of Victorian hangover and maybe things should be thought about. I was just listing up some of the things people mm. have thought and using a rather wonderful, furious line of my late son in one of his diaries after A-level saying, you know, basically it's like Stalin's Russia, you know, sort of <laughs> A-levels, you're just plodding on and on under a grim, <laughs> empty system. And I just thought we'll give that that wonderful few lines from his book a little airing because it has been known to cheer up A-level candidates no end because he says, you know, uh, Brown found a new life in, in Rome and May and social you, you know, it's okay it's better when they're over uh, so it's just that, that's all it's about, it's not a deeply serious thing, but you need Rachel here really to talk about all the, the gritty discussion going on about exams because it is fascinating, the commission is great. Uh, yeah, the, that's the Education Commission, uh, Rachel Vester's mm. chair. What do you think Manveen, does, 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 do you have fond memories of sitting exams? I don't think anyone has fond <laughs> memories of sitting exams. It was just the bleakest part of the year. And it was always ironic it was in summer because oh, you always look worst. out of the window and you could see that life carried on somewhere out there. You just weren't a part of it. Um, and I, 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 I really remember that, that, that sort of um, sitting outside in the garden oh. with a textbook just sort of squinting, convincing yourself that you can revise outside uh, and realising Longing that, to be like everyone exactly, else. Exactly. Uh, actually discovering that you're, you, you just fall asleep uh, in the sun. <laughs> you, you have to trudge back indoors again. I do think it's, you know, it does seem particularly bleak this year. And, you know, Libby talks about it in her column. But um, one of the things we haven't really talked about enough, I think, yet, because the problems are only just sort of filtering through. We've been looking at this a bit on the podcast, too. But there are an awful lot of um, school children who've gone back with, you know, what they're sort of vaguely calling anxiety. So there's there are a whole swathes of children who were really you know promising academically but who have found it so hard to go back after the pandemic some of them are just going back a few hours a week um there's you know they're they they can't quite understand why they've completely switched off and their parents are struggling to make them attend school even um and i think that is actually a much bigger problem than we've we've realized 
the other, the other. I mean, actually, I was, I was sort of thinking about this. My, um, I remember like, when I did my GCSEs. I think that was literally the first. I think we did some mocks. That was literally the first time I'd sort of been in the hall and been through all that rigmarole. My twelve-year-old daughter is currently going through over the next two or three weeks end-of-year assessments, even though it's only May, in every single subject. And she's, you know, she's got a revision timetable and all that. It all seems a bit much um, uh, in, in, generally in year seven. And presumably they're going to plan to do this every year. There's a, there's a balance, isn't there, to be struck, Libby, with um, it's preparing, preparing for, for exams and just becoming completely overwhelmed by it. So they're basically not going to Absolutely. learn anything for the next three weeks. It's gone absolutely beyond ridiculous that, that it's happening so young and so intensely. You know, not use what you've learned, not think about what you've learned, not extend what you've learned. Just repeat what you've learned again and again and again, because the figures have to add up. Uh, I absolutely hate it. And uh, I, I, you know, I'm glad I no longer have children at school. I don't have grandchildren at school or anything like, else like that. But I, I feel for them. I totally do. Yeah. This is some of the really interesting stuff that the Education Commission is looking at, because, you know, we have somehow fallen into a system with you know, with SATs and with this you know, greater emphasis on end of year exams that we are basically training people to sit exams as opposed to training them for yeah. life beyond. Um, and it does feel like that, you know, the balance has to change somehow. In fact, um, later in the week, I'm going to hear, uh, be interviewing Nadim Zahawi, the Education Secretary. So if, you, if you're listening, you've got any questions you'd like to ask Nadim Zahawi, uh, get in touch, email us studio at times.red. Is there anything about the education system at all uh, that you'd like to ask the Education Secretary about? Email me, uh, studio at times.red. I don't know if Libby and Manvreen, have you got any questions for, for Nadim Zahawi? <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to make it all better? <laughs> How are you going to make also, it? Also, I'm, I'm quite interested in sort of, you know, during the pandemic, they clearly had to come up with a different system of assessment. You know, people weren't yeah. sitting exams. There are other ways of doing it. So what are they what lessons are they taking from the pandemic that are actually going to help shape the future? Because they must realise that the, the current system is unsustainable. Perfect. I shall put that very topic <laughs> to him. Uh, finally, are either of you Guinness drinkers? <laughs> I love this piece. <laughs> I had no I, I idea had, about I had this. an Irish friend who insisted on drinking Guinness all through her pregnancy because apparently that's all the rage. It's it's, it's what you need. It's got iron uh, in it or something. Nutrients, that's, that's the justification. Yeah, you're supposed to have one yeah. a day in, if you live in Ireland. Uh, when when you're breastfeeding, uh, absolutely that's, vital. When, you, when you're breastfeeding, I can remember it. Uh, you know, uh, a half a Guinness and, and some scrambled egg, you know, and it, it, uh, <laughs> it is great. But I, I just, I love this idea that in Nigeria, some have it seems to have adopted as a kind of national drink, and the fact that it's black, they're associating it with black power, and um, you know, saying that this is you know this is a great drink, and the other brewers are kind of struggling to to decide you know which is which is the coolest beer to be drinking in Lagos, and the line that some people in Lagos are actually that they don't understand why the Irish go on about Guinness. Oh, do they have it over there as well? <laughs> uh, it's such a good story. So this is in the um, the Times uh, foreign pages today. Uh, uh, nursing mothers drink it. Pharmacies used to prescribe it. Old wives' tales hail its aphrodisiacal quality effect. In Nigeria, a pint of Guinness has become a much of a staple of the country. Of uh, two hundred sixteen million is jollof rice. Uh, they, uh, yeah, there's a brewer there saying that they, um, the uh, Nigerians think of it as their national beer. I had no idea. Nigeria is <laughs> such a fascinating. We've talked about it uh, before. Maybe we should uh, return to it. It's such a fascinating country because it is expanding at such a phenomenal rate. Mm. Um, its economy seems to be uh, booming, and yet it's sort of in doing so, it seems like a very modern, booming sort of African country, but <laughs> reaching for a very traditional um, uh, Irish drink, Mavi. 
I, I think it's a fantastic piece. I was fascinated by this because I hadn't realised how popular it is out there and you wouldn't really associate Guinness with um, with an African country. And yet uh, I, I thought it was wonderful because they've got a lot of beers that have really sort of taken off. Um, and it's interesting because it's become a much bigger consumer of Guinness than Ireland, but that's probably just because of sheer numbers. You know, as you pointed out, they've got a burgeoning population. They're going to have a larger population than America in a few years time. Um, but they don't actually drink as much beer. So if you look at sort of the, um, the you know, the litres of beer drunk in Britain, for example, compared to Nigeria, it's uh, it's it's much more sensible. Um, but they they now have all these beers competing for for that market. And Guinness is sort of the old favourite, but it's now up against sort of cooler beers and, and Heineken in particular. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was wonderful because they classify, they, they basically have now a beer for each personality. And if you're a Guinness guy <laughs> in Nigeria, it means you're sort of, you're steady, you know, you're likely to have like a, a decent car, you're hardworking, um, not in any possible way wild. Uh, and I kind, I kind of love that. And, I, and as Libby said, you know, the advertising around sort of, um, they, they, they talk about it as black power. Yeah, it's um, amazing. <laughs> but I mean, the other thing that really struck me is that um, it's, to me, I did get this very, very, I've only recently discovered, very, very occasionally, basically on a cold, wet winter's day in front of a log fire. It doesn't feel like a, Mm, that'll satisfy. That'll quench your thirst on a hot day in Nigeria. But anyway, Hello. you know, there we are. There we are. I feel like we've learned something. Manveen Varner and Libby Purvis. Of course, you can listen to Manveen every day on the Stories of Our Times podcast. Search for that wherever you get your podcasts from, wherever you're listening to this. And you can read Libby in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, how do we stop the NHS killing people? We ask a panel of experts. 
who's speaking to me about his new book, Zero. He told me that people die unnecessarily in the NHS each and every day. I came to this because the very first of, of many big scandals and issues I had to deal with was mid-staffs. Yeah. And um, I remember uh, talking to the head of the NHS at the time, and he said, you've just got to understand in modern healthcare systems, about 10% of patients are harmed unnecessarily. It's just how it is. So I said, well, how many people actually die? And the answer is about 4% of hospital deaths have a 50% or more chance of being preventable. And then I asked a question I don't think had been asked before. I said, well, how many people is that? Turns out it's about 150 people a week die. This is outside pandemics who shouldn't have died. And I discovered that this is the same in, in France, Germany, New Zealand. Uh, it's higher in America. And I discovered that there is a whole movement of ethical doctors and nurses. It's, it's really called the patient safety movement who think we should not accept this and that there should be no avoidable deaths in healthcare. And that's why I call the book Zero, because I want to pose the question, could we do what they've done in the airline industry, the nuclear industry, the oil industry, and actually say that we are not going to have any preventable deaths or the very, very tiniest amount? That was Jeremy Hunt speaking to me uh, last week. As 150 people a week die as a result of mistakes, errors, oversights that could have been prevented. So what we wanted to do today is dive into this in a bit more detail and actually look at what could be done to bring that figure down, down to zero in the title of Jeremy Hunt's book. Well, one of the things that Jeremy Hunt talked about was uh, every morning, and he had to battle with the Department of Health to do this, every morning he would get a letter on his desk from a patient or someone who'd been to the health service with a complaint, raising concerns about the way the health service was operating. And through that, he got to know some campaigners who tried to change the way uh, the NHS operated. So let's speak to a couple of those people who, who actually worked quite closely with Jeremy Hunt, got to know him well. James Titcombe is a former national advisor on patient safety to the Care Quality Commission uh, and joins me now. Hi, James. Uh, we've also got Martin Bromley, who chairs the Clinical Human Factors Group, a patient safety group. Morning, Martin. Good morning, Matt. I really appreciate uh, you both uh, being here. Um, first of all, I just want to ask you both, really, sort of, in, in the best way that you 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 can, just just remind listeners who 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 may not remember what it was that you went through. Because I mean, neither of you started off life necessarily thinking you wanted to be uh, patient safety campaigners. Um, uh, James, how did you you come to this? Remind us what happened to your son yeah. Joshua. Thank you, Matt. So, yeah, so um, my background, nothing to do with healthcare. I didn't set out to be uh, in any way involved in these discussions about, about patient safety. I was involved in engineering and I worked um, actually in the nuclear industry. Um, and it was back in 2008. Um, we were due to have our second child. Um, that pregnancy was a perfectly normal pregnancy. Um, and about three weeks before the due date, um, we um, were feeling very poorly and my wife's waters broke. Um, and we went to that hospital that day, thinking that we were in very safe hands. Um, Joshua, the, the baby was born, but actually my wife collapsed shortly after the birth. Um, and we were really worried about this. She was given fluids and antibiotics. Um, um, and I asked about Joshua, you know, um, does my wife need, does my, does my baby boy need treatment? Does he need antibiotics? And we were just assured time and time again, no, he doesn't. Um, and very sadly, we, you know, I took that advice um, and 24 hours later, Joshua collapsed. He actually did have an infection. It was the same infection as my wife. 
from that moment, um, he had all the best care imaginable. He was transferred to um, eventually Newcastle, where he had the most amazing intensive care. But very tragically, at nine days old, um, as a consequence of that infection that could have so easily been treated, um, he died of internal bleeding. It was the most horrific death you could imagine. After that, um, Matt, what really shocked me is somebody coming from a, a safety critical sector was how the system responded. I really expected um, no stone to be left unturned in terms of looking for, looking at what happened and learning from it. And I experienced the exact opposite. And you'll hear this in, in many stories from patients that the system closed ranks. Um, there was a, a, a blame culture. There was huge fear. Medical records went missing. And ultimately, um, nobody really learned from what happened to Joshua. Um, and I met Jeremy, I think, in 2013. So after four or five years of campaigning for an inquiry, and that conversation I had with him when he was Secretary of State for Health led to him agreeing to um, what became the Morecambe Bay investigation. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave the story there. I think that's, a, that's a summary of um, where we got up to. There's a lot to unpick there, which we'll do in just a, uh, a moment, James. Let's bring in uh, Martin uh, now. Martin, remind us what happened to your your wife who died in 2005. Yes, yeah, so Elaine uh, went into hospital for a routine operation. Uh, it was a fairly minor operation on her sinuses. Uh, but when she was anaesthetised, problems occurred, it became an emergency and she was uh, she ended up unconscious. Uh, she was transferred to intensive care, but in fact remained unconscious. And sadly, after five days, I had to make the decision to switch her life support off. And she died 13 days after the original attempted operation. And going back, Matt, to what you were saying at the very start of this piece about the, the how wonderful medicine is and all the amazing technical advances. In, in Elaine's case, technically the team were very able. Technically, the operating theatre had all the equipment that you would hope for. But where problems occurred was in what we call the non-technical. And I say that with an element of expertise because I'm an airline pilot and I spend my life not just dealing with the technical, but spending a great deal of time with the non-technical. In other words, the systems that we have that make it easier to, to get safe outcomes, the behaviours we use that make it easier to get safe outcomes. And in essence, what happened in Elaine's case was when the emergency occurred, uh, the uh, medical staff became fixated on the problem, uh, which we know is normal under stress and there are strategies for dealing with that. Uh, that the uh, team around the outside, if you like the more junior team, the anaesthetic assistants and nurses could see what was happening, were trying to intervene, but were unable to get their message heard. And, uh, and, and sadly, the result was the, the loss of a life. The the point you make, Martin, it's um, Jeremy Hunt goes through the, both of your your stories in the book as well, and it really struck me the the point you're making about sort of the culture. It's not about the technical advantage. You can have all the equipment in the world and all the the processes and treatments, but someone needs to make those decisions to use them at particular points. And that culture, the sort of hierarchical culture, which really came across in in your story, Martin, and the contrast. And this is one that lots of people have made between the airline industry and the and and healthcare and actually James you made the point as well you're used to work in the nuclear industry industries where where safety is absolutely paramount and actually what you want is people who pipe up and say ah something's gone wrong here why shouldn't we do this Whereas actually Martin the NHS is a, is, is very hierarchical the point that um uh, people have made in the past you know the 
still doctor this and mister that rather than uh, necessarily yeah. feeling that people can say this isn't right we need to do something else I think I think healthcare has advanced brilliantly over the years, but it hasn't really advanced in in its culture, if you like. It needs to think more like a safety critical industry, and safety really needs to to be the focus of every leader. And I think that's very very important. But I think the point you're talking about here is specifically behaviours, and I think that's one thing that that healthcare can learn from other safety critical industries is we invest a lot of time not just in the systems that make it easy to get it right and i'm happy to expand on that later but on the behaviors so we define what behaviors are more likely to lead to success and less likely to lead to failure and we get that evidence from the evidence of accident reports incidents safety reports training sessions and as well from uh from from evidence gathered in studies of what brings about success in a safety critical industry. So what we do is we have a list of behaviours that we expect our pilots, our colleagues to use. Uh, we, we recruit to it, we select to it, we train it, we assess it, we examine it. And on occasion, we may ha maybe have to performance manage people to it as well. And, and that's really that comes all the way down the system. And one of the big things I think that, that is key is that we spend a lot of time looking at an open style of leading. So in other words, when something is happening and in Elaine's case, you know, this sudden unexpected emergency, then what we want to see our leaders is just pausing for a moment, even in a, a time critical moment and just ask asking open questions to their colleagues around them to see what what they can other people perceive what thoughts they have so you talked about the problem of people speaking up earlier and jeremy's been right to reference that many times but for me it's actually the problem of listening up <laughs> we want leaders and we want people to behave in a way that that asks for input that seeks input not because it's helpful for other people but because it helps them to actually come to the right decisions um james you were just talking about uh you mentioned the blame culture and let's just take a listen to what jeremy hunt had to say about that what actually happens in those hospitals is that doctors nurses midwives they make mistakes just like you or i make mistakes but unlike us they are brave enough to go into a profession where sometimes when they make a mistake, the price is a tragedy, sometimes even a baby dying. And they are often petrified that if they're honest about what happened, that they made a mistake, they'll just get fired. Because it's the easiest thing in the world for the hospital to say, well, we just, I'm afraid, I'm so sorry about what happened, but we, we had a rotten apple here and we've, we've dispensed with the services of this doctor or that nurse. And the pattern with all these tragedies is that we are really bad at learning from mistakes because there is a blame culture which makes it really difficult for doctors, nurses, midwives, all the people involved in the care of our loved ones to be open and transparent. And that I think is the most troubling thing and that's what you find in medicine all over the world that because what happens is so serious, people dying, that you know lawyers get involved, uh, there are inquiries, and suddenly it becomes really difficult to do the one thing that's actually more important than anything else at all, which is to learn from that mistake so that another family doesn't go through the same tragedy. Um, James, I mentioned that you worked in the nuclear industry, so there's a big overlap from what uh, Martin yeah. was just saying. But again, it's that, uh, the sort of the blame game. And then, and then it's sort of falling to, to you as a, 
grieving father to try to get to the bottom of that and coming yeah. up against a, you know, the biggest employer in the UK closing ranks sometimes. Absolutely. And um, that, that was the shocking thing, Matt. So thinking about my days working in the nuclear industry, um, we absolutely had a culture where we didn't punish people for making mistakes. And I'm sure Martin would say that's the same in aviation. I think too often, even though we're moving towards a healthy culture in healthcare, too often that, that's not the case. So the example I sometimes share with people is, um, you know, we had a scheme um, at the nuclear site I was working on, lots of people working there and doing very risky work, but very carefully um, um, assessed and controlled. Um, and we had this thing we used to call them human performance awards. And the example I remember was, um, you know, a poster on the wall at work. Um, and the example might be um, a scaffolder who dropped a scaffolding pole, caused thousands of pounds worth of damage, um, but actually reported that to his supervisor openly, even though nobody saw him doing it. And that enabled, you know, learning and reflection and that, that closed loop. Um, you know, what would have happened if, um, you know, and, and, sorry, and, and, and the answer was, um, you know, there was a £25 um, Mark Suspenses voucher given to that person and a pat on the back rather than being disciplined. Um, and it's that kind of culture I think we de desperately need in healthcare. The journey I went on with Joshua um, began with a very, you know, feeling very angry, feeling that the staff had um, deliberately covered up what, what, what happened to him and very much thinking um, these are bad individuals, these are rotten apples. What I learned over the years um, really was to think about for them the, the initial response to Joshua's death. Just it must have been a really scary place to work. They were petrified about um, their jobs, being referred to the regulator, about possible criminal um, processes. And if you have that kind of a culture, that doesn't make it easy for those staff to do the right thing. And I think, you know, Mark Martin will talk about human factors and making it easy for staff to do the right thing. You've got to have a culture that enables people to be honest about those, those kind of normal human mistakes um, without being so fearful that um, that, that in all honesty get, gets inhibited and, and we don't end up learning. Well, I really appreciate your, your time this morning, both uh, James Tickham and Martin Bobbley, in particular the fact that, you, you know, you in the, out of the worst possible circumstances, you've ended up committing yourself to trying to uh, to stop the same thing happening to other people. So I really appreciate your time today. That's uh, James K Tickham and Martin Bromley. Uh, just patient. People who are using the NHS and finding themselves uh, uh, in the worst possible moments uh, dealing with one of these potentially potent preventable deaths and then campaigning for improvements. Uh, let's now speak to uh, two people who know the, the health service well. Professor Dame Anne-Marie Rafferty. It's a professor of nursing policy, policy at King's College London, a former pre president of the Royal College of Nursing, and has been, uh, in 2009, was appointed to the Prime Minister's uh, Commission on the Future of Nursing and Midwifery. Uh, good morning, Dame Amory. Good morning, Matt. Uh, it's great to have you with us. We've also got Dr. Kamran Abassi, the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal. Morning. Oh, well, morning, uh, morning, morning. Nice to have you with us. Um, Amory, one of the things that I came across, I was just thinking a lot, reading both Jeremy Hunt's book and speaking to him, and then, uh, you know, having looked into it more, is the NHS just just too big? It's such an, not that I'm suggesting it should be broken up, but it is such an enormous organisation with doing so much and so many different things that mistakes will happen. Or is that a sort of defeatist attitude? And do you think we, we need to be doing more? Well, I agree, Matt. It is a highly complex organisation with many moving parts, as you've just indicated. And I think there are changes afoot again in terms of the overall governance. 
structures and realignment of some of the, the top bodies, decision-making bodies within the NHS that might facilitate more joined up decision-making and planning. And one of the things that we definitely need for the future, and Jeremy Hunt has been a champion of this, is a long-term plan for the workforce. And very, very sadly, that was a clause, that an amendment that was not supported within the recent Health and Care Bill. And that is actually quite shocking. So even when you want to do the right thing, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can do the right thing. And just on the point that we were discussing before around patient safety, we've done research that demonstrates that nursing numbers are linked and associated and can predict patient safety in terms of patient mortality. So one of my fixes for the NHS, of course, you would expect me to say this, wouldn't you? But actually it's backed up by the evidence is that we need to invest massively in nursing numbers because if we don't have nurses, which, you know, they form the largest safety critical profession in the world, actually, um, 28 million of us, I think that's probably more than pilots or nuclear <laughs> workers. Um, it's the largest and most, I would say, potent insurance policy that the NHS and social care has between them. That's over 3 million workers. In, in, in the country actually make a huge contribution to preventing patient harm. I suppose uh, that that's a key point, isn't it? And uh, 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 come on, is the um, as Jeremy Hunt was saying, you know, it does come in part with increasing numbers because you have more staff, more doctors on wards. They have more time to stop and think. Uh, uh, and talk to each other and then to pause and learn lessons. Whereas if you're you're one ragged going from one crisis to the next, you're very tired, you're more likely to make mistakes, you're more likely to to sort of try to move on and do, do the next thing. Uh, it, it actually does come down to numbers to a large extent. Yeah, Matt, thank you. Uh, I mean, yes, it does come down to numbers. The first thing we can talk about those in a second. One, one thing to say, though, about Jeremy Hunt is... Um, it's great that he's uh, championing all these issues now, but he, I mean, as most healthcare professionals will tell you, and I'm sure many patients will, he failed to make progress on almost all of these things while he was the longest serving health secretary. So we all have to take it with a bit of a, a pinch of salt, but certainly the workforce strategy is a, is a very important part of the solution here. And if you look at the bare numbers, um, we have something like 2.8, 2.9 doctors per, per head of per 1,000 um, you know, people in the UK, whereas the comparable figures from Germany are about four uh, doctors per 1,000 people. Uh, and across the um, EU, it's about 3.7. So we're well short. So when people estimate how short we are in numbers of, of healthcare staff. We're running into tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of staff. And this isn't a, a problem that's just occurred as a result of the pandemic. It's been an ongoing issue that stretches back over uh, a decade or so. And a lot of it is to do with uh, the retention crisis. It's not just uh, you know, training up more people, but more and more people um, are leaving the professions, the healthcare professions, and that's, that's very worrying. Um, 
so we retention if we could if we could address yeah. retention keep people in the in the health professions working in the nhs then that would go a long way to start to mitigate um, against the challenges that we're facing and actually actually that but, was one thing yeah. that um i discussed with jeremy hunt because at one point i think he promised five thousand more gps uh, and he did add some, but then so many others left that he ended up with about was it three hundred extra? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the problem is he upset people. I mean, because I mean, he yes. brought in a lot of the changes around the, the upset continuity of care, shift exactly. working, the upset junior doctors. So people left the profession. But yeah, he brought in five thousand, lots more left. People are leaving on a weekly basis. We know the stats. Uh, but what what's needed is is that the government needs to come up with a very clear. Um, a workforce plan with numbers, a clear strategy that can be implemented uh, with targets uh, and with some funding to make it happen. And it's it's kind of hit, been hitting everybody in the face for over a decade. Yet there's a, there's a certain reluctance to do anything about it, um, except to pay lip service to it. Um, Marie, I discussed this with Jeremy Hunt about the the. Uh, uh, there seems to be an intrinsic problem with, particularly with healthcare. It takes eight years to train a doctor. That's it. That's potentially at least two general elections. And part of the reluctance, it strikes to me, is to why politicians won't say, right, we're going to train 10,000 more doctors. It's because someone else is going to get the credit for that, which is a very short-termist political response rather than one that reflects healthcare. Um, should, do you think that we need to sort of... <laughs> it's always a slightly depressing thing when you think you've got to take these decisions away from politicians. But in the same way that, you know, interest rates are set now by the Bank of England rather than the Chancellor with an eye on a general election or whatever it might be, do we need to sort of in, have a more independent NHS, which does some of this, this planning uh, in terms of the numbers of doctors based on population and medical developments rather than short-termist uh, electoral considerations? Well, that's interesting because it's a point that was actually made as a recommendation from a report that I was involved in co-leading from students at King's College London across all faculties. And they drew that analogy, Matt, with the Bank of England, that we should have an independent NHS board, um, which should oversee the governance. And that was really a response to the critique that the NHS is forever a political football and the behaviour politically is exactly as you've just laid out. But I think just one point I'd like to make to the public um, and listeners is that uh, in contradistinction to, you know, the airline industry or the nuclear industry, I think that the public would be shocked to know that there's no legal framework in place for minimum staffing standards for nursing. We have legislation in Wales and in Scotland, and we're pushing on that in Northern Ireland. One of the great outcomes, of course, from Boris Johnson's re review of the protocol, if it could facilitate that in Northern Ireland, would be brilliant. But England is a kind of behemoth that so far has been resisting that pressure for legislation. We need minimum standards of nurse staffing. We have them in other areas, in childcare, for example, even uh, in looking after dogs in kennels. And we can't actually provide that for patients in hospitals. And I think until we set those standards and have those minimum uh, standards and thresholds, then we're on, we're on you know, we're really on, 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 a, on a slippery slope. Just fine, I want to ask you both, have you read his book? Are you going to read his book? Do you think he's got, Jeremy Hunt's got anything useful to add to the conversation? Uh, yeah, I mean, 
personally, I probably won't read his book, Matt, if I'm honest with you. I mean, we, we, I've read many interviews with, with Jeremy Hunt and um, you did a very nice piece on it in the, in the Times as well. And I, going back to your point about an, an independent, more independent in NHS, I think that's absolutely um, one potential and very good uh, avenue to explore. And unfortunately, the current bill that's going through Parliament makes the NHS less independent. So that is, a, that is a point of concern, and, and, and I'd support what you're saying. Can I just go back to a little bit the point about um, that, that you were talking to James and Martin about, which is the no-blame culture in the NHS? And again, a bit like the, some of the solutions that Jeremy's come up with, because the other reason I want to read his book is because you know, they're, they're out, they're, we've known about them way before he was the health secretary, so it's surprising that he's come to them so late, <laughs> is that... Um, is that you know, there's something called a no-fault compensation scheme, which is used in a, uh, very successfully in, in New Zealand, for example. And that takes a lot of the heat and a lot of the blame um, out of, uh, out of uh, healthcare and, and, and blaming staff and blaming doctors and blaming nurses. And that's one potential way, very concrete thing that can be done to help improve the situation so we don't have to hear situations like James described of his experiences, Martin described yeah. his experience. So we want to avoid that and to avoid that we have to get rid of blame and, and, and no fault compensation is an established way of doing that. Uh, it's really good to speak to you. Uh, thanks so much for that. It's Dr. Cameron Abassi, the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal and uh, Professor Dame Anne-Marie Rafferty. Oh, actually, Anne-Marie, I didn't ask you, you're going to read the book. I am actually because I'm interested in history. I'm a historian and <laughs> I think it what Jeremy Hunt has done, he's actually been a champion for patient safety. Of course, the chief medical officer, Liam Donaldson, was before him. Mm. But it's like reading a history of the patient safety movement. So from that point of view, and perhaps identifying missed opportunities, um, I'm sure that would resonate with, with James and Martin and many others. Yeah, so, yeah. yes, for the reflective learning that it might provide and holding him to account as well. I know, exactly. It's such a difficult thing because on the one hand you think, well, you were health secretary for a long time. Why did you do something about this? The book actually charts, he, you know, sometimes he did and sometimes uh, he admits he could have done more. But, you know, I think we should probably encourage politicians to be slightly more self-reflective rather than telling us everything that was marvellous. Uh, really good to speak to you. Dame, uh, Professor Dame Amory Rafferty, Professor of Nursing Apology at King's College London and Dr Cameron Abassi, the Editor-in-Chief of the British Medical Journal. Thanks very much for joining us. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.